Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart for what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig. just want to welcome all the newcomers here today. I'm thankful that you're here. And remind you that on your way out, if you didn't, on the way in, there is a connection table that if you stop by, we will put a gift card in your hand as just a thank you for being here with us today. Um, we're continuing our series through Ephesians. It's a good one. It's continuing to have a big impact in my own life. I think a lot of what I've been experiencing, actually, what I've been learning has to do with what's going on right here, right now, this room. Um, this past week, we had a members meeting on Wednesday, and part of what I really wanted to have happen during our time together was that we would walk away feeling like we're a family, a family because of Jesus. God is our father. We've been adopted by him, and so we're brothers and sisters. I hope that I hope that, that vibe comes through today, because that's really a big part of what Ephesians is about. It's about who we are because of what Christ has done. You know, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and I was reminded of something from a long time ago. There, the ancient Romans actually used to call Christians atheists. Of all the things they could call us, they called us atheists. Why would they call us that? Because we, the Christians at that time, the early Christians, would not worship their long list of gods. There's actually a quote somewhere where uh, a guy said that a guy called Christians the destroyer of the gods. Christians were hated. They were hated in ancient Rome. They've been hated ever since, really. There's a long history of that. But they were hated at at that time because they undermined the Roman way of life. They uh, were considered sexual prudes. They said, one man, one woman for life. Romans didn't like that. They were potentially insurrectionists. They wanted to start a rebellion. Why? Because they didn't join in with everybody else in worshiping the emperor. They did something crazy. They would rescue children from infanticide and abortion. Romans used to just have babies and they, unwanted babies. They would leave out to the elements, expose them. Christians would go and rescue them. And they would do this thing in worship where they would put slaves and slave owners, people from different ethnic backgrounds, all kinds of diverse economic backgrounds on the same level. They'd worship the same God. They'd be in the same room together. 
Christians are crazy. They're undermining the, our way of life. They're a destroyer of the gods. And so, the Christians at that time, they lost their jobs, they lost money, they lost prestige and honor. Some of them lost their lives because of what they believed. And yet, despite all of that persecution and the difficulty that they faced, that small Jewish sect, which is what it was when it first started, talking about the early church, the early Christian church, this group that centered their lives around Jesus, who they said raised from the dead, that eventually spread across the entire empire. Why? Why? What was the secret sauce? Why did it spread the way that it did? Why did it go down the way that it did? How could it spread in the face of so much difficulty and persecution? So much opposition? And even more basic, why would anybody want to join it in the first place? If you're just going to lose your job and your money, you're going to face all kinds of persecution and slander and insults. Why would I want to be a part of that? Paul's writing right here in the book of Ephesians, what we just read. Paul's, Paul's writing about that. Paul himself, as he's writing this letter, is in jail. He's suffering. And he's in jail because he's bringing this message of Jesus, the gospel, to the Gentiles, people who are not Jews. And he wants to show them, in this passage specifically, he wants to speak to this idea that it's worth it. It's worth it to follow Jesus. He doesn't want them to lose heart. Now, There's a handful of ways when people start to lose heart, you might even know what I mean when I'm talking about losing heart, there's a handful of ways that you might come alongside somebody and encourage them. And one way that you might do that is come alongside them and listen to what's going on in their life and be tenderhearted and compassionate and encouraging and caring. And that is totally legit as far as helping people not lose heart. There's a little bit of that here in Ephesians. But think about the book of Ephesians as a whole. The book of Ephesians as a whole is an invitation to all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ to marvel. To stand back and behold kind of the broad macro picture of what God is doing in all of the cosmos. To stand back and worship God who is doing it all. The God of time and space who stepped into time and space in the person of Jesus To take our sin to the grave, leave it there and rise from the dead and make us his people. So the tone of Ephesians is not necessarily one of tender mercy and encouragement. It's one of the great work of our awesome God. He's putting on display how great he is. And so another way, so one way is to come to help people not lose heart is to come alongside them, encourage them, show compassion. Another way... To lift someone's heart is to talk about what you were made for. To talk about, or even to paint with a, with a big paintbrush, the great purposes that your life, you are made for. You're part of. Greater than the current circumstances. So no matter where you're coming from this morning, I'm talking to you. Everybody who's in this room right now, you are here for a purpose. God brought you here. No matter where you're coming from, there is something so, so good, so good about the gospel, so good about Jesus and what he's doing here in this place through his people. That's what we have this morning. That's what we're going to see this morning. It's an invitation for you to take heart. 
to marvel at what God has brought you, you personally, into something truly great to join the work that God is doing in the world. Let's pray. Let's ask his blessing. Let's dive in. Lord, I'm thankful to be here today. I'm thankful for my family, my family in Christ, these brothers and sisters who are here with us. Lord, we're asking you to speak to us this morning. Your word, it it isn't like other books that we read. Uh, where we can sit over the top of it and look at it and judge it, whether it's right and wrong, good or bad. Your word judges us. It shows us what's true and what's good and bad and right and wrong. It cuts to our heart. It reveals things. And Lord, I'm asking you to work that way through the power of your word in us right now. I sit under your word. We all together, we sit under your word and the power of your spirit right here, right now. You promise good things to us if we do come to your word, and that's exactly what we're asking for. Come and speak. We are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, three things that we're going to see as we walk through our passage, and it's all built around the idea of taking heart. It's for all of us to take heart. And I, you know what? It doesn't even really matter how you come into this room. You might feel really super encouraged in your faith, and that's awesome. I'm glad. You might feel totally down. You might not have any idea what I'm talking about. Jesus, it still applies, and you'll see why. Take heart. Remember your testimony. It's the first reason Paul gives. Second reason to take heart, the mystery is revealed. The third reason to take heart, we're part of the plan. Let's look at the first one. Reason number one, to take heart. Remember your testimony. Now, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 3 have always bugged the English teacher in me. Some of you know that I was an English teacher when I was a missionary overseas. If you look at those first three verses, there is no verb. I always read that. I was like, what what is going on here? Paul just had like a grammatical, you know, missed it. When Paul gets to Ephesians 3, what he's doing is he's, he's actually getting ready to pray. Look again at verses 1 and 2. I'll read it again. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and there's a little dash in your translation or a pause. And then he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul is starting to say something at the beginning there in verse 1. And then suddenly Paul halts his train of thought. But notice, here's what I want you to catch. I said that he was getting ready to pray. If you skip down to verse 14... That's actually where he picks it back up again. So what he started in verse 1, before he got interrupted, before he interrupted himself, he actually continues down in verse 14. For this reason, see there it is again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul feels compelled to pray. He says he's got a reason to pray. For this reason, I've got a reason to pray. What is the reason? Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. This verse kind of summarizes it. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Again, this is Ephesians 2, verse 19. That's where I'm looking. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So why is Paul going to pray? He's going to pray because Jews and Gentiles, people from all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, are being built into the house of God. Because of that, Paul prays. Now, that new reality is profound. It's profound enough that, uh, that he's about to go down to his knees and pray about it. It drives him to his knees. Scott talked about it a little bit last week in Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to talk about it a little bit this week. 
the prayer, the content of what Paul is praying, we're actually going to tackle next week. But what I want you to go, what I want you to see as we go forward is that Paul was getting ready to pray because of what, what is so profound about what God has done in Christ for us, his people. So as he begins to pray, Paul halts himself, and then he goes off on a little rabbit trail. You know what I'm talking about? You're talking, you're, maybe you've done that while you're praying before. You're praying, and then all of a sudden, whoop, what's for lunch? That's not where Paul's going. He's going someplace different. It's very intentional. So why did he do that? Why did he go off in a different direction? Why did his prayer stop right there? You might have caught it. Let's, re- let's read that verse 1 again. He, he, just, he says himself, he said, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. There's something about the reality of being in jail that makes Paul pause what he was going to say. It derails his prayer because he senses the need to do something to care for the people that he's writing to, to care for the church. What is it that he senses? Well, he actually tells us at the very bottom of of this section, verse 13. So I ask you, this is verse 13 of chapter 3, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul thinks, as as he's writing this out, he thinks, my suffering in prison might make some of them lose heart. And he wants his little flock to not lose heart. He wants them to take heart, to have hope, to be comforted and encouraged and strengthened. And, and it's a right instinct, I think. I think if we just think about our own lives, we think about our own situation, for those of us especially who are Christians, it's easy to think things like this. Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus rose from the dead. He is the king. He is our risen Lord. So how can Paul be in prison? How can these hard things happen to me? How come this is going so wrong? As Christians, we're going to face situations like these, where our circumstances don't, it doesn't match up to the reality that Jesus is risen from the dead and he reigns over all things, that Jesus is on the throne. We may be adopted sons of God, but often on earth we can feel like we're being treated like trash. Doesn't that just show that God is losing? Doesn't that show that Jesus didn't win? The short and simple answer to that is no, it does not. There's an empty tomb and thousands upon thousands of testimonies of people who have trusted in that same risen Lord whose lives to the very end testify to the truth of who Jesus is and his ultimate victory for them. His kingdom, Jesus said, his kingdom is not of this world. That kingdom is yet to come and we're not there yet. He's remaking this world. That's still happening But in the meantime, Paul wants to lift the people up. The Spirit of God wants to lift you, Christ's community, up today. He wants you to take heart. And so that's why here Paul reminds them of what God did in him. And in reminding them of what God did in him, he's also pointing to all of you. He's saying, remember what what he's done in you too. So, let's look at Paul's story real quick. It's not here in the text. I just want to take you back um, to Paul's origin story. Love origin stories. 
My son went to go see Shang-Chi this week. I really want to go. I love origin stories. I can't wait to see that movie. Paul's origin story, though, here is important because it's real and it impacts. It's, it's a little bit of, it's a slice of our own origin story. You know, I, I've been thinking about this. I read a book recently where um, when other people share their stories, you're able to actually find pieces of your own story in their stories, which actually drink, draws you closer to them. There's something sweet about hearing other people's stories for you with them and them with you and even in your own self. Paul is sharing with us his story. Paul was born in a city named Tarsus. He's known for education. It'd be like growing up in a college town, for example. He grew up a Roman citizen. It says he was born a Roman citizen. And that was actually a really big deal. Paul, his family, somewhere along the line, had to gain access to the Roman citizenship. I don't know how he did it. Scripture doesn't say, but that is a very exclusive group to belong to. He was an outsider, remember? His family was Jewish. In order to be part of the Roman, to be a Roman citizen, that meant that his family had to have some sort of power, had to have some sort of money, some sort of connection to get him in there. I I actually was listening to one historian say, he, he said about Paul, he said, Paul shopped at Tiffany's. That guy had money or something, influence, something. I think that's helpful to understand. He studied with the top teacher of that day. His name was Gamaliel, something like that. I can't quite get it out of my mouth. But he was, it was like going to Harvard. He was the smartest guy, the top teacher. And Paul was a great student. He was devoted to God in everything that, I did, everything that he did. He was zealous for, for doing what God said to do. So, taking Paul religiously, economically, educationally, positionally, Paul was goods. He was a success. That was before he was a prisoner for Jesus. He was prosperous. Before Paul was a prisoner for Jesus, he was prosperous. Here's the second thing about Paul's origin story. Before he was a prisoner for Jesus, he was a persecutor. He was a persecutor of Jesus. His religious zeal, what I just talked about, it actually fed his desire to put down that little Jewish sect, that he, he hated it. He, he hated Christians. So much so that Acts 8.3 says this. Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after, after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Philippians, he talks about his zeal to persecute the church. And when it came to actually... <laughs> To actually killing them, he was standing by. He was, he was standing by when Stephen was martyred. Jesus, though, interrupted all that. He came to Saul, who would later become known as Paul. He came to Saul on a road. Paul had a vision. And he set Saul, Paul, on a different road. And that's the stewardship that's been entrusted to him that he talks about in verse 2. And that stewardship would take Paul all over the world, telling them about the unsearchable riches of Jesus. That's what we read about earlier and helping to build the early church. So now Paul is prosperous. He was a persecutor, but now he's a prisoner for Jesus. That's what he says. So here's the question. Was this, was this an upgrade? Was this an upgrade from his former way of life? Certainly not in his circumstances, But to Paul, it did not compare to what he had before. Three times in our section today. Verse 2, in verse 3, 
And in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 2, verse 7 and verse 8, Paul calls this grace. What God has done in his life, it's a gift. How can that be? Because he's given something, he's been given something so great in the gospel. He can be a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And it's that for Christ Jesus that changes absolutely everything. That's something that the gospel does. That's what the gospel does for everybody. Everyone who Jesus' life, everyone's life who Jesus touches, you can be a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and it feels like incredible blessing. It's like what the old hymn says. It makes the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I read this yesterday in the newspaper. Don't judge me. Yes, I still get an old-fashioned newspaper. In the sports section, they had an interview with a, with a football player named Isaiah Williams. He's one of the best players on the team. He was one of the greatest recruits in a long time for the Illinois football team. I know not all of you guys are sports fans. This actually isn't about sports. He was asked a question. What's the best moment of your career at Illinois so far? And he could say virtually anything, right? He could, he could talk about some touchdown or some victory or some celebration or whatever. And here's what he said. I say the best moment is my faith, actually. Learning about God. That's been the best moment I've had. Actually finding faith in God and diving into the word and my faith. I mean, that's, that's what the gospel does. That's just a real life local example of what the gospel does. For a guy who could have had a whole lot of great moments in football, by the world standards, a lot of great moments of success or honor or prestige, he says, best thing, knowing God. But the gospel's work in Paul's life doesn't end with just new, new life and sin washed away and a home in heaven, though that is definitely all sweet parts of the gospel. That's what he's testifying to. He's saying, you've heard about my past. I also assume that you've heard that he sent me out to do his work. And do you know, you have too. You've been sent out to do God's work. You're not only brought to Christ, you're sent out by Christ to do his work, to tell the world about him. That is a glorious privilege, a gift, like Paul says, to tell the world about him. And that's the first way that Paul wants us, his church, his people, and the Ephesian church to take heart. Remember your testimony. Remember that God saves sinners. And then amazingly, he takes those same sinners and he sends them out to tell the world about him. So take heart. Remember your testimony. Here's the second one. Take heart. The mystery is revealed. Look at the way that Paul describes what God sent him to deliver to the word, to the, to the world. There's a key word in there. So we're looking at verses 3, 4, 5, 6. The key word is mystery. Now, this isn't a mystery like a Sherlock Holmes thing, or some novel that you read or a movie that you watched. It's, it's something that actually has been revealed. That's why Paul's talking about it. What is the mystery? He actually explicitly defines it in verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus 
through the gospel. So, previous generations before Paul, stretching back, you know, thousands of years, they caught glimpses of this, but they didn't fully understand. Prophets talked about it. People foretold it. The kingdom of Israel lived it in a lot of ways. It makes me think about our last sermon series through Ezra and Nehemiah. God had freed his people from Babylonian rule and had brought them back to the land of Israel in order to build a temple and a wall and a city. Ultimately, those things were about God building himself a people. Well, this was just a shadow of something far much greater that God was doing and is now revealed. The builder, the ultimate builder, It's not the workers who worked on the wall or the person who put the mortar on the bricks and the temple. The builder is Christ. It's Jesus, risen from the dead, building a spiritual home with stones, you and me, in a house where he dwells. His temple, with these these stones that once were sinners, now washed clean in the blood of Christ. A place where he lives. And the extent, how big, what was the scope was it just some tribe? No, not just some, some Israeli project. It's not just the Jews. It's literally the whole world. People, us, me and you, we fracture along all kinds of different lines. Political, that's a big one. Social, economic, ethnic. We like to divide into groups. But Jesus isn't building just one people group. He's building a whole people from multiple peoples, from multiple ethnic backgrounds, from, from high and low, left and right. And he's bringing them together. He binds them together. That's what Jesus is doing. This is the mystery that's being revealed. And you know what's interesting? Here's, here's something. At the same time that Paul is writing Ephesians, he's also writing another letter, Philemon. Philemon... It's about bringing a slave and a slave owner, should be more like this, slave, owner, slave, back together. He's changing the nature of their relationship. Not Paul, Jesus, through the gospel, because the gospel had come to bear on each of their lives, and it changed everything about their relationship. Jew, Gentile. Rich, poor, slave, free, everyone brought together, united in Jesus Christ. The mystery made known that the Gentiles were, being, were fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. You want to know what that looks like? The church. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't want to get too far ahead. So take heart. The mystery is made known. It's revealed. Those who are on the outside now are brought inside. Everyone is together. The mystery is revealed. So here's the third reason to take heart. We are part of the plan. Verse 8. To me, though I'm very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was made a preacher, a herald, someone who announces news In particular, good news. He was sent to tell the world. Because uh, Gentiles are basically all of the non-Jewish world. So he was sent to tell the rest of the world about what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. 
What does that mean? The unsearchable riches. It means past finding out. Inexhaustible. Like you could never reach the bottom. In chapter 2, Paul uses this, this phrase again. He said that God will spend all eternity showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about that. All of eternity, the unsearchable riches of Christ poured out on you. I'm really tempted to just go for a long time to talk about heaven. A place without sorrow or sadness, no more suffering, a place of unending joy, only increasing joy and delight. The unsearchable riches of Christ poured out on you for all eternity, making that known to the world. What a message. All because of Jesus. Paul has experienced a foretaste of those unspeakable riches. He's experienced it in his own life, right? He calls himself the least of all the saints. And he means it. He's not just throwing those words out there. He's not just trying to be self-deprecating and humble and all that jazz. He means it. He was a persecutor of the Christians. I told you earlier, he stood by as they were murdering another Christian. And he looked on it and was glad. And now he's a Christian. He's the least of all the saints. And more than that, he references earlier in the letter, the things that Moses and Elijah and David and Isaiah saw, they just saw in part, he gets to see in full. He gets to preach the mystery revealed. Who is he? To go from what he was before to this. I was thinking about saying something later. I'm going to say it now. God uses the least of all the saints, the least of all the Christians, to preach his unsearchable greatness, his unsearch- the unsearchable riches of Christ. He does not use some sort of super commando Christian who is profoundly eloquent and has every gift that you want to know and uh, has their life in perfect order. That is not what it is. It's sinners. That's who Jesus uses. That's who Jesus sends. It's sinners who have in some way experienced the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's who he sends. That's who he uses. If you're a Christian... You have experienced the unsearchable riches of Christ. It doesn't mean that you have to get knocked down off your horse and thrown on the road like Paul was. That's not how it's going to be for the vast majority of us. Any experience of grace that you have, and God leading you to trust in Christ is worthy to be shouted from the rooftops. But I said, what I said this section is about, it's about being part of a plan. We're part of a plan. Take heart because we're part of a plan. What plan? Preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ causes something to happen. Preaching produces. That's verses 9 and 10. The preaching is an unveiling. It's an unveiling of God's work. It's uncovering the plan that God had from eternity past And it's shedding light, pouring out light. You can think like a floodlight shining down on what God is doing. And what is it that he is doing? Verse 10. Through the church, 
The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The visible outcome of what happened in Christ on the cross is the church. The visible outcome of what Christ did on the cross is the church. It's us. Yes, I mean the church as a whole across the entire global world. You think about all the different congregations worshiping right now, worshiping in the name of Jesus. Yes, that is what he's done. But I am talking specifically today to you, and I mean the Spirit of God means you. That's what his word says to us through his word. You and me, the people in this room, we are God's plan from eternity past. It's among these people. I'm talking about the people on your right and left, front and behind you. It's among these people that the blessings of the cross come to us. Let me give you just three really practical examples. Here's the first one. It's here with these brothers and sisters that you're going to experience the presence of God, being in the dwelling place of God, like it says at the end of chapter 2. Here's another one. A second one, real practical example. It's among these brothers and sisters that you're actually going to experience one of the profound benefits of being the house of God, of being God's dwelling place, which is forgiveness. Not just doctrinal forgiveness. Not just the truth that positionally before God, because of Christ, we are forgiven. But actually experienced through one another. Giving and receiving. From somebody else. Here's a third way we experience this. It's among these brothers and sisters here in the room with you right now that we're going to true, we're going to experience true unity. Dividing walls, coming down, living stones fit together. That's the mystery revealed. That's the plan that God has had, and that's the plan that you're part of. The people in this room are so important to you. Now I keep saying that's the eternal plan of God. That's coming from that's coming from verse eleven. And you, but what we need to recognize is that if this is what God has been doing from eternity past, today you sit in a place of cosmic blessing. And it was for this purpose, the purpose of building the church, to display, it was for this purpose that God wanted to display his manifold, multifaceted wisdom. God brings, how would God display his wisdom here? Because I'm sure you're thinking about all the problems and all the inadequacies, most likely with the other people in the room, not yourself. How could God be possibly displaying his multifaceted wisdom here through such, a broke, through such broken people like me? God brings the least of all saints. And we feel that way sometimes. And he builds them into a house where he will pour out his blessings on them and through them to the world. Sinners brought into the holy house of God. People who are far off brought near. And I read something recently that I think kind of captures this idea that we, Christ community, Christ community church, 
captures this idea of what God is doing here, the tone of what God is doing now through Christ. It's a call to worship. How he's displaying his profound, multifaceted wisdom through us. This is a call to worship for you. This is a call to worship that's true of us. Oh, Lord, may it be true of us at Christ community. So receive it. To, to all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ. The ally of his enemies. The defender of the guilty. The justifier of the inexcusable. The friend of sinners. Welcome. That. That is glory. That is the manifold wisdom of God. That he would welcome us all in. That's what happens here on a Sunday. That's why this place is world changing. Not because we're trying to be relevant to the culture or be like the culture. Because we're so different. It's only in the church that things like that are truly experienced. And how, oh, how, I, I mean, I do that so imperfectly. How I need Jesus' grace to be able to do that kind of welcome. We all do. But when it happens, and it does, because God's spirit is here, when it happens, the world takes notice. And you know what also takes notice? Heaven. Heaven takes notice. That's what Paul is saying when, when, when he says at the end there, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Not only the world takes notice, but all of heaven takes notice of what is going on in here because of what Jesus has accomplished. What God has done in bringing us together to be his people causes even angels to marvel. And they, will, they will marvel, and they do marvel at his wisdom. And that might surprise you. You might think, man, maybe the, angel, the angels should probably know everything, right? First Peter 1 talks about angels longing to look into the things that you and I know in the gospel. They don't understand it. They don't fully, I'm talking about angels, good and bad. They, they don't fully understand the plans and purposes of God. And so they get taken to class. They get brought into school when they look at Christ's community on a Sunday. His grace, his mercy, his kindness, his tenderness. When they, they learn about that, when they see us, they will witness and they will marvel. And we have the distinct privilege of experiencing it. As verse 11 says, this is all according to plan. All according to plan. It's been a tough last, last 18 months for all of us. Masks, no masks, inside, outside, move here, move there, in the office, out of the office, yes to school, no school, back and forth. Things are going to continue to change. You know what won't change at all? God. And you know what also won't change? His purpose is to build his church. So take heart. 
take heart. The last couple phrases. Continue boldly, continue confidently, don't shy away. If you're, if you're not part of this church right now, if you're not part of the church of Jesus Christ, that is if you haven't trusted him for the forgiveness of sins, come receive the blessing. Trust in Jesus today. If you're a Christian and you're here today and you don't have a church, get in a church. Come join this church. Come be a part of God's cosmic blessing here. If you are a part of this church, if you trust in Christ, take heart. You are part of God's cosmic plans. Take heart. Remember your testimony. Take heart, Christ community. The mystery is revealed. We're in. And take heart, we are part of the plan. The plan to tell all nations, proclaim to all nations the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, who are we that we would be part of your cosmic plans? It's just total grace to us and we are so thankful. So thankful. Oh Lord, manifest your glory here Thank you that you are here with us. Help us to do all that by your grace for one another, to love one another well, to welcome one another well, to forgive one another well, to stir one another up to good deeds well. Because, Lord, we want to manifest your, your, your immeasurable greatness, your manifold wisdom to the world and to heaven. You are that great. You have done it for us. We're just very, very grateful today. In Jesus' name, amen.